Welcome to page one. My name is Abhishek Makun. We're joined today by Robert Jensen, a former professor at the University of Texas at Austin. Professor Jensen taught at UT from 1992 to 2018, teaching courses in media law, ethics, and politics. Professor Jensen has written multiple books and has appeared in multiple journal articles. All right. Thanks for your time today, Professor. Great to be here. Thanks. So from the start of his campaign to just a couple of days ago before the midterms, President Donald Trump has used xenophobic and misogynistic uh, language to appeal to key factions of his base. But before we get there, let's start at the beginning. Donald Trump announced his presidency by coming down an escalator and demonizing foreign countries for stealing American jobs and for those countries, namely Mexico, for sending us mostly drugs and rapists. Why do you think then-candidate Trump chose to announce in this fashion? Well, Donald Trump is a savvy marketer, and as a politician, uh, he's drawing on his skills in the business world. So if you are trying to rise quickly in the political sphere, you have no experience, you have no policy ideas, what can you do? Well, you can appeal to the deepest basis instincts of a country. And here we're not just talking about um, a self-identified, xenophobic, racist, white supremacist segment of the American population. We're talking about the American population. And I think that's one of the most important things to understand about Donald Trump is he's not an aberration. Donald Trump is articulating a view of the world that has long been popular in the United States and at one point was the dominant position in the United States. That is, the idea that the United States is somehow you know, divinely gifted with a disproportionate share of the world's wealth is not a position unique to Trump supporters. It's been kind of the guiding light of the United States since its inception. Uh, especially in the post-World War II era when the United States emerged as not only uh, a superpower, but in some sense as an unrivaled superpower in world history, a nation with an extraordinary share of the world's wealth uh, maintained with the largest, most powerful military in the history of the world. That's the United States. Mm -hmm. That's why we live as well as we do. Some people want to maintain that with a kind of liberal internationalism. Some people, when when they feel threatened, are willing to maintain that with a more overt, xenophobic, white supremacist, militarist position. And those are essentially the two factions of the dominant American political scene right now. Mm -hmm. A kind of liberal facade, uh, an internationalism that still assumes the right of the United States to claim that disproportionate share of the world's wealth, and a a cruder, more xenophobic version that doesn't mince words in talking about what it's willing to do to maintain that wealth. That's why I'm not a Democrat, I'm not a Republican. Uh, Doesn't mean I think both parties are equally culpable for various crimes. (laughs) But it's important before making pragmatic decisions about how to act politically in the moment to recognize the larger picture in which contemporary politics plays out. And that requires one to step back and be critical, not just of one or another faction in American politics, but to be critical of the entire American political project. So when you say Donald Trump is not an aberration uh, to American society, really, Mm -hmm. and his, his way of thinking, what you also went over there two main factions of thinking the liberal side and then this more xenophobic kind of conservative side. Um, 
when you say that, what kind of holds are there in the government? What kind of structures are there within the government that kind of allow that to still exist, do you think? Well, I think you have to think not just about the government, but the relationship of the political sphere to both the economic and the cultural spheres. So uh, this is one of the major failings of most political science departments, is they talk about politics divorced from economics. If you want to learn about economics, you go over to the econ department. If you want to learn about government, you go to the political science department, as if these two spheres of the world are somehow separate, which is, of course, ridiculous because concentrated wealth dictates the nature of politics in any society, and that's true in the United States. So the first thing to realize is the policies being pursued, whether it's by you know, the Clinton wing of the Democratic Party or the Trump wing of the Republican Party, first of all, are designed to you know, continue the existing economic system. Uh, this varies over time between parties. Sometimes within parties, you'll see support for one or another of the factions within the American economy. Mm -hmm the oil companies versus, you know, the manufacturing company. There are all sorts of intricacies in this. But in general, uh, if one wants to understand politics, you have to understand economics. And that concentration of wealth, especially the way it's held in corporations today, tells you a lot about how politics works. But there's also a cultural and ideological facet to this. And as I already mentioned, the United States is like all nations, in a sense, thinks of itself as special, exceptional in some ways. But the United States has a particularly deep pathology around its own self-conception. Uh, this goes way back to the founding, the so-called city on a hill metaphor. Mm -hmm. The idea that the United States is somehow either divinely inspired or perhaps in more secular terms, just by historical uh, necessity, the, the vehicle for bringing democracy, freedom, peace, justice into the world. And that's deeply set in the American psyche, mm -hmm. not just in politicians, but this idea of what's typically called American exceptionalism, that yeah. the United States is somehow an exception to history. So when you add all this up, the, the economic realities, the ideological realities, um, a, a governmental system that keeps power in a relatively small number of hands uh, that promotes a kind of general uh, affluence. Not that every person in the United States is affluent, of course, but compared to the rest of the world, the United States population is extraordinarily affluent. Uh, and all of this maintained with a kind of delusional self-image. Well, that's politics. That's why it keeps going the way it does. Now, there's always, it's important to, point out resistance to this. Uh, I always think about the year I was born, 1958. Well, in 1958, we were in the, you know, the middle of a red scare. Mm -hmm. uh, there was a demonization of any critical perspective. Uh, women were still distinctly second-class citizens. Much of the African-American population was disenfranchised. Uh, issues that we now take for granted, things like gay rights or the health of the environment as an important question. They didn't even exist back then. All right. So that was the world I was born into. And of course, the social movements, the popular movements that emerged in the 1960s into the 70s, uh, often drawing on older values about equality and the dignity of human beings. Well, those, you know, had an effect. So uh, when one tries to understand how power operates in any society, one has to remember 
power also generates resistance. Mm-hmm. And that back and forth is, you know, the most important part of politics. And again, this is, I think, sometimes what political science departments don't understand. Uh, they conceptualize politics as that struggle within the electoral realm to decide which faction is going to run the government for any particular length of time. But a more expansive conception of politics also takes into consideration um, those resistance movements as fundamental to how wealth and power are distributed. Uh, uh, That seems to me to be what we should be talking about and understanding Trump not as some aberration, but simply part of this flow in American history. uh, which is, I think, important to recognize a deeply pathological history. Um, this is often tied to ideas about white supremacy, too, that we can't even really in this country come to terms with the fundamental reasons behind that incredible affluence. And the United States, let's face it, is the wealthiest country in the history of the world, largely because of two Holocaust-level crimes. The first and most obvious is the nearly complete genocide of indigenous people without which the land base of the United States wouldn't exist. And the second, of course, is African slavery, which um, is central to the emergence of the United States into the Industrial Revolution, right, where the wealth begins to be generated. Okay, well, uh, the indigenous genocide and African slavery, both tied to notions of white supremacy, are central to why we're sitting in the country we're sitting in with the affluence we are. Well, if the country was going to be you know, intellectually honest and morally defensible, those would be foundational questions we address. The kind of thing you would start talking to kids about in grade school. Mm-hmm. And of course, there is conversation about these things, but the country still, to a large degree, simply hasn't come to terms with this. Uh, and that's the world out of which you get Donald Trump. So... You know, Donald Trump appeals to white supremacy, what's often euphemistically called white nationalism, but it's basically just white supremacy. Uh, Well, that's a central part of the American ideology, the notion that somehow we deserve everything we have because of our superiority. Okay, that's Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. You can look at other things Trump appeals to, um, you know, the, the deep misogyny that still resonates in a patriarchal culture. Uh, the you know direct appeal to uh, the wealthy. That's mm-hmm. just kind of the irony of Donald Trump. His, his so-called base is supposed to be you know working class and rural white people who have been largely left behind by economic expansion. But if you look at his policies, especially this obscene tax cut that was passed, well, it's clear that Trump isn't going to put resources and opportunity and money in the pockets of rural and working class white people is going to shovel it back to the wealthy and the corporations, which is pretty standard in this country. So uh, that's Trump, both um, a disturbing trend in the political realities of the United States, but one that's kind of predictable given the history. Now, you're talking about this resistance kind of group that comes up to kind of fight against what the government is trying to do at a given time. Mm-hmm. And you talked about the 60s and 70s. Could you see a lot of Trump supporters as the same kind of resistance to kind of this more liberal America where gay rights is passed, where there's more rights for transgender folk? Um, and you get this the first black president in the office. Like, 
you know, is it is it possible that these people are also that same kind of resistance just on the opposite end? Well, I wouldn't use the term resistance because resistance implies a kind of coherent re- uh, analysis of power. And in fact, I think the the fuel behind Trumpism is exactly the opposite. It's not a coherent analysis of power. It's a deep misunderstanding of the way power operates. So it is true that, you know, if I'm just thinking of my own upbringing in North Dakota, a fairly rural state, overwhelmingly white, and now squarely in the Trump camp. If you grow up in a place like North Dakota and the world seems orderly and, you know, white people are in charge, but that's okay because that's the way it's supposed to be. And everybody's economically stable because that's the way it's supposed to be. And then you see those conditions change. Well, you can ask, why do they change? And it may be that, in fact, they change because the system was never, you know, acceptable and moral and sustainable in the first place. Mm -hmm. In other words, it was a problem with the system. Well, that's a hard truth to deal with, that Mm -hmm. you've always been part of a system that was morally bankrupt. It's much easier to just look at demonizable figures, you know, gay rights activists or women or people of color and say, look at, you know, the world used to make sense, which means in that, from that perspective, I used to be doing well. So the world used to make sense and now it doesn't. And who are the easiest people to blame? Well, that's not a coherent analysis of how power works because power has been working pretty much the same way for a long, long time, which is a relatively small minority of a population has control over uh, a relatively large percentage of the economy. That is, they direct the productive capacities of the society and they profit from it. Uh, They use violence, whether it's police violence at home or the violence of a military abroad, to maintain that system. Uh, And for those who, you know, do fairly well under that system, it can look orderly. Mm -hmm. But of course, it's not based on any kind of moral order. In fact, it's based on a profoundly immoral order in which, you know, force, violence, coercion bring benefits to a small percentage of the human population. And that's increasingly obvious in the U.S. as the wealth inequality expands. Mm -hmm. It's always been obvious in the world. I mean, these are, you know, we're talking about this in the U.S., but these are kind of truisms when you go through much of the world, especially the third world, which has, of course, been on the receiving end of this system for a long, long time. So do you think, given that some of these, you know, these beliefs of like, oh, it's easy to blame someone else, do you think that is inherent in some of these people? Or was that just brought out by Trump? Or was that something actually placed in them by Trump? How do you think that kind of misogynistic or racist language came about or these racist beliefs came about? Was that, like you're saying, that it's just historic and it's something that's part of America? But we've also seen a shift where it's not just how it used to be, where some of these, you know, beliefs about whether it's Mexicans or Arabs or whoever it is, this other, uh, they tend to get worse and worse as time has gone on since President Trump's election. So do you think that's something that President Trump has contributed to? Do you think that's something that President Trump is responsible for? Or do you think it's always been there and he's just highlighting it more? Well, let's just talk about patriarchy, um, the system of institutionalized male dominance. Uh, Trump embraces a patriarchal worldview. He He articulates it in particularly crude fashion that hasn't been acceptable in polite company in a long time. 
and therefore he contributes to a misogynist a misogynistic backlash to any attempts by women to assert um, you know wider sphere of freedom and justice okay uh, that's how Trump does it but we shouldn't be lulled into thinking that absent people like Donald Trump we would live in a world of gender equality and so I guess I'm always trying to make two points one is Trumpism this phenomenon this resurgence of open white supremacy really ugly patriarchal notions and a kind of rejection of you know the the liberal order of the world uh, it's dangerous uh, we shouldn't minimize the degree to which that has real effects on people's lives and destabilizes systems that can have even more dangerous effects down the road mm. at the same time we should recognize that if we didn't live in a patriarchal society more deeply donald trump couldn't exist and so there's a kind of liberal face of patriarchy as well i've been involved for 30 years now in a feminist critique uh, coming out of what's typically called the radical feminist position of men's routine sexual exploitation of women in industries like pornography and prostitution and stripping. These are industries that have become so normalized that most people don't even think that this is simply the way men routinely buy and sell objectified female bodies for sexual pleasure. Well, is it likely that we're going to achieve a society with gender justice when one class of people, that is men, routinely buy and sell women's bodies for sexual pleasure? It's, no, of course not. Mm -hmm. But in polite liberal circles, uh, a, a an acceptance of even an embrace of pornography and prostitution is not unusual. Right? So that's the liberal face of patriarchy, let's say. Uh, you know, you can see this on issues, another issue that splits the American political parties, uh, abortion rights. Mm -hmm. uh, one facet of patriarchy historically has not only been men's attempt to claim to own or control women's sexuality, but of course also own or control women's reproductive power. And that leads to, uh, on feminist grounds, uh, uh, reproductive rights, women's rights to choose to have an abortion. Right? Now, the right wing, the kind of conservative face of patriarchy says, no, women shouldn't have that right. The liberal wing says, no, we're going to support that women's rights. But in other ways, the liberal wing is also deeply patriarchal. And you see it today, for instance, in support for surrogacy. Mm -hmm. So, you know, liberals who are four square for women's reproductive rights have no problem with a, a now international business in which largely wealthy Western uh, couples will literally rent a third world woman's womb. <laughs> surrogacy uh, is happening all over the world. And liberals assert that surrogacy is consistent with gender justice. Well, how are you going to achieve a society with any meaningful equality for women? when you're going to designate one class of women essentially as wombs for rent. Well, these are the kinds of things we need to be talking about. All right. Conservative and liberal faces of white supremacy, of uh, patriarchy, uh, liberal and conservative faces of capitalism and the concentration of wealth. Uh, we have to keep this big picture analysis in mind. Uh, and I would call that a radical analysis, an analysis that doesn't just look at how 
people are distributed within systems, but ask what is the nature of that system itself. And at the same time as we're stepping back and trying to critique those systems, we have to realize that there are very specific threats in the moment. Mm -hmm. right? So the Democrats are capitalists, the Republicans are capitalists, mm -hmm. I'm anti-capitalist, <laughs> so I don't find a home, a comfortable home in either party. Mm -hmm. But I can also look at the contemporary political scene and say the Republican Party is posing a much greater threat literally to the survival of the planet because part of that ideology around capitalism for the Republicans now is a denial of climate change. Right? So you have a political party that is committed to not taking seriously what could arguably be called the greatest threat to human survival in the species history. Well, that's a much different level mm -hmm. of threat than whatever the Democrats are going to pose. Now, that said, I don't think the Democrats have a coherent uh, policy on climate change and the larger ecological crises, but at least they're in the realm of the, the plausible, the sane, the <laughs> rational. The Republicans have just dissociated from reality on that. So if you ask me, do I have a political party? In some sense, the answer is no. I'm kind of politically homeless in that sense. Mm -hmm. But if you ask me, uh, who am I going to support in a particular election? Well, I'm going to support a political party that might be able to provide some sort of impediment to this almost literal kind of insanity that the Republican Party now represents. So if you add up all of this under this label, let's call it Trumpism, that is an open embrace of white supremacy, an open embrace of misogyny, uh, a, deep, a, a commitment really to deepening economic inequality, and a, an approach to these multiple ecological crises we face that essentially guarantees that there will be no decent human future. Well, that's not a hard choice to make. Uh, but if that's where you stop and simply analyze the worst of these two political formations, then I think we're missing the bigger picture, which is we still have to think about the nature of these systems. So you, you're talking about this Trumpism, but we're seeing this kind of happen not only in the United States, we're seeing it overseas in a bunch of other countries. Brazil just elected uh, kind of a, a supremacist of his, in his own right. An openly fascist yeah, and he's president. Yeah, possibly going to start chopping down parts of the Amazon forest. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and then you have in Hungary, you have um, another kind mm -hmm. of fascist leader there. Um, you've seen Xi Jinping in China start claiming that he's going to be president for life. He even got a vote done for it. So we're seeing these strong men appear all over the world. Why do you think it's happening in that way, in this exact moment where we're seeing this rise of authoritarianism across the world? I think there's a, a easy answer and then a more complex answer. The easy answer is the failure of the liberal order to deliver uh, on the promises that really emerged after World War II. And so by liberal order, I want to make it clear, I'm not talking about liberal and conservative as we talk mm -hmm. about in the U.S., mm -hmm. a kind of liberal international order based on you know, international law, based on the the idea of open markets. Uh, the world that the United States and Western Europe imagined at the end of World War II, and there are some aspects of that world order that are, you know, admirable. Like the idea of a universally applicable international law to, you know, stop genocide and to end war and all that. I mean, those are all noble ideas. Mm -hmm. uh, but that liberal international order promised, in some sense, to reverse the tide of history. 
and that tide of history, of course, had, you know, been marked by colonialism and exploitation and all that sort of thing. Well, the liberal order didn't really deliver. Uh, and that failure produces a reaction. Now, that reaction can go in one of two ways. It can go into a progressive, radical critique of the systems themselves, you know, the systems of capitalism and nation states and all of that. Or it can go into this resurgence of what's generally be call, being called right-wing populism or authoritarianism, where people see the failure of the liberal order and say, well, we need the strong man. And there's certainly a part of human nature that responds to those appeals to a better day. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's not hard to appeal to people about the good old days. We all fall into that trap sometimes. So I think that's the easy answer, that there is simply... Uh, a range of ways people can respond to system failure. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it draws on the better angels of our nature, and sometimes it's ugly. Right? I think the deeper question, though, is, uh, is there a way in which people, even people who wouldn't articulate it in anything like this fashion, recognize that the human experiment is spiraling out of control, that in fact, with seven and a half billion people on the planet consuming resources at a rate well beyond sustainable levels with economic inequality um, that violates everyone's moral principles, that there's something wrong that we know we can't fix. And I think this is an important reality to ponder. Um, to get beyond the idea that, oh, all of our problems are just kind of technical matters we can solve with new policies. What if, in fact, you know, as it's been posed, what if the human with the big brain, mm -hmm. you know, which is our species, Homo <laughs> sapiens, been on the planet a couple hundred thousand years. Mm -hmm. What if the human with the big brain is simply an evolutionary dead end? What if there's a kind of supreme irony in that the cognitive and linguistic capacities of the human being which allowed us to dominate the planet in the manner we now do. That is our ability to think and communicate, to collaborate with other human beings, has produced a kind of domination that had within it the seeds of its own destruction. Well, that's not a crazy reading of human history. If we think about human history, you know, more than the last couple of decades or a couple of centuries, well, it does seem that the human being is on a trajectory to destroy the capacity of the planet to sustain our own lives. Well, that's a, a an in, I think an intuition a lot of people have. I articulate it, I've been thinking about it a long time and I think it's a fair way to describe the current situation. But even people who wouldn't articulate it, I think can kind of feel it. And when you're up against that kind of analysis, um, the difficult path is to come to terms with it and say, okay, how are we going to move forward in a world where there aren't going to be 7.5 billion people forever? Mm -hmm. Maybe the human population will increase to 8, 9 billion. But at some point, the unsustainable nature of human societies is going to mean we're going to drop to a much lower population. And we don't know how to think about that. Mm -hmm. We've always had to think in our lifetimes about how to deal with a rising human population. What if the greatest moral challenge of the next century is going to be how to manage a really dramatic human decline, which is really a way of saying a human die off? Mm -hmm. Well, nobody has experience or 
even the moral imagination, I think, to understand that. Okay. Well, in the face of all that, which requires a kind of not only intellectual and moral courage, it takes a kind of emotional strength to look at all of this. Well, people often take the easy way out. Uh, and the easiest way out is to believe in the strong man, to believe in the mythology of a great, you know, glorious past that can be reclaimed by the strong man leading people. And uh, in a way, I mean, I'm not sympathetic to any of those instincts. Uh, I think they're ugly. They're the ugliest part of being human. But one has to at least recognize that they're understandable. Mm -hmm. it's, it's one thing to validate a position. It's another thing to understand it. And I can certainly understand why it's attractive to people. The question is, how do we present an equally attractive counter narrative in a sense? How hard do you think it is to kind of disillusion those people? Is that something we can do as, you know, maybe people who don't give in to those ideas of a, a better pastor or a strong man? Is it, is it, does it fall on us or does it fall on just kind of waiting for the strong man to kind of just reveal his charade in a sense? Well, there's, a, I think a, these are questions of political strategy. And I think I'm, I'm relatively open-minded about political strategy. Um, you know, you could look at the current system of capitalism based in nation states with its ties to, you know, 500 years of European colonialism, the disparities of wealth in the world. You can look at all that and say, the only possible solution is armed revolution, right? You've got to take down the people in power and put in more representative governments that will work for the people. All right. I mean, that's a perfectly plausible argument. The problem is, I don't think anybody's presented a, a coherent strategy for armed revolution. Uh, there have been moments in human history when armed revolution was an appropriate response to concentrations of wealth and power. This doesn't strike me as a time when that's likely to be very successful. Yeah. So somebody can drop back and say, okay, well, you know, armed revolution isn't it. So all you can do is work within existing political structures to try and tinker you know, uh, you know, change this policy, change that policy. And this often gets presented as, you know, you're either uh, a radical in favor of revolution or mm -hmm. you're, you know, um, a reformist in favor of, in favor of incremental change. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that's kind of the wrong way to think about it because different kinds of political interventions are possible at different moments. Not all moments in history present the same opportunities. So the real question is, what do we do today? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I vote. I think voting is important. I think incremental change is important, partly because real people's lives are affected by it. Right? The difference between a Republican and a Democratic governor, for instance, can be the difference between expanding Medicaid or not expanding Medicaid. And when you expand Medicaid, the real lives of real people are improved, and I'm for that. The other thing is incremental change can sometimes create conditions that make more dramatic change possible if you mm -hmm. keep pushing. Right? All of this, you know, you can talk about in the abstract, but it's really a question of what makes the most sense in the moment you live in. The thing I've been suggesting, which is rarely very popular, but I think when you can create space for it, people will be grateful for it, is to actually 
go beyond this kind of simplistic, well, it's either revolution or it's reform, and simply come to terms with the the place we are in the world, this, you know, what I was calling a kind of intuitive understanding that the human species is in deep trouble, deeper than we've ever been in, and that there is no obvious way out of it. Um, the way I talk about this usually is that we need to create a space for grieving, not grieving about individual loss or heartbreak, but a kind of collective grieving about the state of the world. And that means not only the human components of the world, but the non-human components as well. Uh, we're living in a world that in some sense is dying. And uh, you know, I don't mean that you know, the whole world is going to suddenly, suddenly die and all organic life on the planet is ending tomorrow. I, I don't want to sound like a science fiction novel, but I think it, that that phrase, the world is dying, resonates with people. You look around at the non-living, the non-human part of the world, and you can see the damage human beings have done. You look at the, the cruelty within the human community. Uh, there's a kind of grieving over that. And for most political activists, you don't want to encourage people to grieve. You want them to get out and think they can change things and move forward. Political organizing is largely about energizing people. Mm -hmm. And I realize the importance of that. But I do think if people are feeling this deeper sense of grief about a world that is changing and maybe changing beyond our capacity to intervene, mm -hmm. then I think you have to speak to that. And so a lot of what I've been doing is trying to create space for people to feel that. Uh, and that's especially important in a world that is so emotionally deadened by high technology, and by the pace of modern life, by the incredible isolation that just living in the United States generates. Uh, I think people lose track of that, that, you know, we, we look at the material indicators of a society, you know, who's got the money, who's got health insurance, <laughs> who's got a, access to a decent education. Those are all material realities. Mm -hmm. And they tell us a lot about how people are living. But there's also a, a more intangible way that we all experience the world. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I think that we need to talk more about is this profound sense of disconnection. People feel disconnected from each other. Mm -hmm. uh, it's striking how in the modern world, deep community and and friendship networks are not as extensive as they once were and the sense of disconnection from you know the rest of the planet why i usually call the larger living world of which we are part uh, part of that's about technology uh, you know everybody knows that if you're spending 10 hours a day staring at a screen you are not connected to the living world in a certain way uh, part of it's about the scramble for income part of it's about uh, just the way physically our world is organized um, you know these are things we have to talk about they're intangible they seem emotional some people would call them kind of squishy mm -hmm. they're not usually seen as the hard aspects of political conversation but i think they're crucial so now we've we've had trump elected how do we go from that time where we go from this kind of, you know, the open racism, open misogyny, mm -hmm. you know, kind of talking to what we said before, some of us want to kind of go back to a time when that wasn't there. But like you said, that's always been a part of yeah. the United States. So how do we move forward past this? Because it seems like with 
advances in technology, we are going to get more isolated than we were before even, Mm -hmm. you know? So it seems like you're going to get even more shut in, kind of get more into a bubble yourself. And so it seems hard to somehow reason out how people are going to come out of this election out of maybe if Trump wins again in 2020, Mm -hmm. how are people going to move forward from this open racism or this open misogyny? How do you get past that point? Yeah. uh, Well, first of all, uh, I think it's important to say it may not be possible to get past it. I mean, this, you know, this is again, political or no, I think it's important to recognize that there's no guarantee of success. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, again, to put this in the context of my own life, I was born in 1958, the post-World War II generation in which I grew up assuming that there was a kind of ever-expanding economic bounty. There was a kind of belief in progress that, yes, the U.S. was a racist society, but it would move past that. Um, you know, the, the one of the most popular quotes from Martin Luther King Jr. was, uh, the arc of the universe is long, but it bends toward justice. This belief that somehow progress is inevitable. I think the first thing to say is, well, it's not. I mean, let's just be honest. Um, And that can seem depressing to some people. To me, it's actually invigorating that we don't just get to sail along on this sort of long and winding river, which eventually will take us to the promised land. Mm -hmm. But in fact, it requires a lot of intervention. Mm -hmm. And the other thing that I think is important is to realize not only is there no guarantee of success unless we act, but action also depends on a coherent analysis. And this is especially, I think, something that younger people need to understand that occasionally I've been in meetings where you know, people will say, especially younger people, I'm tired of talking. We need to get out and do something. Mm-hmm. Well, that's true. Often people sometimes can feel more comfortable sitting around discussing than actually <laughs> taking risks. And so one has to be aware of that. But if one goes out to do something and the plan is not based on a sensible analysis, you can pretty much be guaranteed that whatever you do isn't going to work. And so thinking and talking, you know, that act of analyzing the world is not a mere, you know, bourgeois affectation. It's not something only for universities. It's essential to figuring out where to go. Let me give you an example. So we have a, a crisis around climate change, largely the result of burning fossil fuels. We need to stop burning fossil fuels. Coal, oil, gas, all have to be left in the ground. Okay, that's a good goal. So you want to get out and do things to stop the burning of fossil fuels. Well, that's fine, but what do fossil fuels provide for us? Well, they provide a lot of comfort, right? That we're an affluent society, again, not that everybody is rich, but we're in historical terms, stunningly affluent society Mm -hmm. where a lot of the material comforts that come with fossil fuels have been taken for granted. Mm -hmm. If you're going to say, well, we just have to leave fossil fuels in the ground. What about the infrastructure of the modern industrial world that provides all this comfort? Right. Well, what's going to power it? Well, you can say, well, green technologies, renewable energy. Well, the problem with that is if you actually look at a technical analysis, there's really no combination of wind, solar, geothermal, or anything else that's going to provide enough energy to run the modern industrial world. 
Now, people disagree about this, but I think that's the most sensible look at the data. All right. That means if you want to leave fossil fuels in the ground, you've got to figure out how to power down the world. Mm -hmm. And that means people have to talk honestly about what they're willing to give up. And, you know, we're starting to talk about some of that, like air travel. Okay. In an environmentally sustainable world, guess what? People are not going to get on an airplane to go home for Thanksgiving, which many UT students are thinking about this week. Right? In fact, in an environmentally sustainable world, virtually no one would be flying. Mm -hmm. All right. Uh, well, leave fossil fuels in the ground. Fine. But how are you going to reformulate and reimagine everyday life without that incredible energy surplus that comes from coal, oil, and gas? Well, if you don't think about that, and then renewables don't provide, well, what happens? Well, then people start scrambling around for nuclear power. A big debate going on. Some in the environmental movement are already saying, listen, we can't live without nuclear power. You know, that we need to go back and embrace what we once rejected as an environmental community. All right, well, the problem is the same issues around nuclear power still exist. The problem around the safety of nuclear plants and the unresolvable problem of where to put the waste, as far mm -hmm. as I can tell. Okay. Well, without analysis to guide action, actions can actually leave us in a place where we're just facing even worse problems. It was a long attempt to suggest that <laughs> it may be that when we face problems at this level, that to simply imagine that marching in the streets will change things is dangerous. And it impedes this both intellectual and emotional work I keep talking about, where we have to come to terms with the reality of the world and actually allow ourselves to feel it. Mm -hmm. And in a, again, in a society that, you know, often that offers us a lot of cheap and easy ways not to feel. Mm -hmm. yeah. If you're feeling something uncomfortable in this society, well, what do you do? Well, first of all, take a pill. That's the easy way. <laughs> or if that doesn't work, go shopping. Yeah. Or if that doesn't work, go to some mass spectacle sports event. And, you know, there are in this society, there are countless ways to avoid reality. Mm -hmm. And I think probably one of the most important political acts in the world is to organize so that we can confront reality. The problem is that reality is not pleasant. It's not pleasant both when we look at the reality within the human community, because everybody knows that the distribution of wealth and power in this world today leaves you know, probably roughly half the world living in conditions that nobody can imagine being morally acceptable. The, the poorest of the world's poor live at a level that is morally unacceptable by every system you can imagine. Right? And then there's this larger question of the what I always call the multiple cascading ecological crises that make a large-scale human presence into the future uh, a question mark. Well, those aren't, you know, upbeat party game kind of topics <laughs> of conversation. But again, I think people want to have those conversations because at some level, I think people are feeling it. So I think if I had to sum up what your beliefs are, it's that we need to be able to grieve and we need to be able to confront. And I think that's kind of what, is that what you're getting at? Yeah. Like we need to be able to say those things? Or, or maybe to put it somewhat differently, if we are intellectually honest enough to confront the reality of the world we live in, to look at the, the things that are unacceptable to us morally 
as I said, every whether it's a theological or a secular system, every system of morality in the world would condemn the impoverishment of half the world's population. Right? If we confront that, if we're intellectually honest about it, if we're intellectually honest about the state of the ecosystems of the world, then I think that grieving is an inevitable response and shouldn't be seen as a diversion from politics, but should be seen in some ways as a starting point for a new politics. If you're going to focus not simply on the failures of individuals in systems, but focus on the problem of systems, if you're going to look honestly at the data about the world, I think that grieving is inevitable. And I think that's an important point that, frankly, most political activism in the world today ignores mm -hmm. out of a fear of it. And I think it's time to stop being afraid of what we, in some sense, we all are feeling. How do we get there exactly? Uh, well, I mean, you know, I sketched the problem. I mean, I don't have time to talk about <laughs> how we're going to get there because the answer, of course, is nobody knows how we're going to get there. Yeah. Uh, there are some things, you know, that are easy. You can say, for instance, uh, the quick and seductive nature of social media has to be resisted. And political organizers who use social media have to build into their organizing much more face-to-face -face human connection mm -hmm. because it's hard to do what we're talking about, you know, over the internet. Mm -hmm. So for all of the value of computer-mediated communication to political organizing, we also have to see it as an impediment and that we have to, to in a sense, be able to waste time. <laughs> um, I'm a big fan of wasting time these days. Uh, so just to make it concrete, imagine you're in a political group and you're organizing to support a piece of legislation. Okay. And you want to have a face-to-face -face meeting. And somebody says, well, we can organize that more quickly and efficiently over the internet. It's probably true you can. But what's lost when you do not have that experience of sitting with other human beings and having that deeper, richer kind of connection? Well, if somebody said, well, that's a waste of time, I would say, yes, it's a waste of time. So let's make sure we do it. Mm -hmm. uh, those are very specific things that we can think about. Uh, but, you know, I, I think... Nobody has uh, a playbook for how to get us from where we are to something that we might call a just and sustainable future. And if anybody said they had a playbook, I mean, if you asked me that question and I took off the shelf a nice three-ring <laughs> notebook with the 12 easy steps to social justice and ecological sustainability, I would recommend the first thing you do is leave the room because I'm obviously a lunatic. <laughs> if I think I can write that playbook, then I suffer uh, from the same kind of grandiosity as our fearless leader today. Uh, that's just a way of saying there are limits to any one human or any particular human ideological formation to really chart the grand and glorious future. I mean, there's a history of people making those claims, uh, both on the right and the left. In this sense, you know, fascism has always said, here is the path to the glorious future to mm -hmm. reclaim our glorious path. And when people offered that playbook, it didn't end well. And on the left, there were similar claims that, you know, uh, you know they, we'd worked out the, the laws of history and could create, you know, the new man, as it used to be called in the old gender terms. Uh, well, that didn't turn out so well either. So <laughs> I think, you know, muddling ahead, recognizing both 
human resilience, but also recognizing human limits and doing the best we can to establish a base for what we hope will be a decent society might be as good as we can hope for at, at the moment. And if somebody comes to me and says, well, listen, that's great, but I'm really interested in gun control, or am I really, I'm really interested in universal health care, I would say, great. There's, I'm not suggesting people have to drop their interest in specific issues. We all come into the world with things that, that connect for us, that drive us, that we feel passionate about, and that's fine. I'm just saying that as you pursue short-term remedies for the problem of a nation awash in guns or a wealthy nation that doesn't care for its citizens, uh, as you pursue those, don't lose track of the nature of the system that causes these problems. And don't disconnect from that fear that we all have that we're in a mess we may not get out of. Don't be afraid to grieve. We can do more than one thing at the same time. And I think those various levels of immediate attempts to make the world a better place, being willing to, to analyze the system out of which the problems emerge in the first place, and then looking at the limits of the human future, all of those can be done at the same time. Professor Jensen, thanks for your time. My pleasure. Thank you. You've been listening to Page One. Thanks to my guest, Robert Jensen, and a continued thanks to the Page One team. Subscribe to Page One on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Google Play. If you like what you've heard, leave a review or share the pod with someone you know. Follow us on Twitter at Page One Pod and email any suggestions or comments you might have to pageonepod at gmail.com. See you soon.